Welcome to Annabelle Spark CEO Podcasts, Conversations on Economic Opportunity. My name is Paul Kretko, and I'm the President and CEO of Ann Arbor Spark. And I want to welcome you to a series of conversations with key leaders from those sectors. And we have a really unique opportunity today. Joining me is Skip Sims, who recently retired from his role at Ann Arbor Spark, as Ann Arbor Spark's Vice President and Michigan Angel Fund Managing Member after nearly two decades supporting the Ann Arbor region's entrepreneurs. It's great to see you, Skip. Thanks, Paul. Good to be able, here. Able, able to do that. So what I always find interesting when we have these conversations, and I know this, but I don't know how much our audience knows, then why don't we just start start at the beginning, before you were so engaged with venture capital, angel funds, early stage funding for tech companies. Before that, you were VP and general manager of WEVV in Evansville, Indiana. And I think some, I think I've seen some YouTube some video of you actually doing the weather. I don't know if that's true or not, but hey, tell us about that experience and how you got yeah. involved in the early, really that would be the early days of television, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I was in television, local television for 29 years. And the station in Evansville, Indiana was the last one that I was running. Okay. Um, Ann and I have moved around the country and managed multiple TV stations in various parts of the country. And, and the weather thing, I started out in news and uh, on air doing news and doing weather and those were in the development age of television as it was maturing so i had a great ride at a great time in the tv business and uh, most of the uh, years were actually managing local stations and it was fun enjoyed it but in 1999 it was a good time to get out the reason was valuations of radio and television stations escalated in the late 90s, and it was a good time to sell. And so we took advantage of that. The industry had largely matured. Cable was coming on strong. Right. The internet was starting to get traction. So it was a good time to get out. Yeah. And that station was owned by Ralph Wilson. It was the second TV station that I was managing for him. The first one was in Cadillac, Michigan, and that's where Ann and I first got exposed to the beautiful state of Michigan and actually fell in love with it and said, look, this state's ideal. This is what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Four seasons. We can ski in the winter. We can golf and bike in the summer. Lots of fresh water and clean air and trees and all of that. So when we left, we decided, okay, Michigan's kind of where we want to settle down. Oh. And when Mr. Wilson decided, look, maybe now that we're getting out of the broadcast business, what do we want to do next? And we discussed uh, the possibility, well, maybe we should consider venture capital, which was hot at the time. Mm. And so I like to tell people we sold high, but then we turned around and we bought high. And, you know, two years later was the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. And we learned the hard way about venture capital. We learned a lot. And that's actually how we got, how I got connected with Governor Rick Snyder, who at the time was a VC in the state of Michigan, raised, was raising another venture fund, and we invested in that fund. And then that led to Spark. Yeah. So, so maybe just share a little bit with the audience. Some, you know, may now have a, a reference point to Ralph Wilson because of the, his legacy in terms of him creating a foundation and putting significant resources into it to support two communities that he was very active in. One is Southeast Michigan, 
the other is Buffalo. I, and, you know, I know this, but many others may listening may not. That you know, he also at one time was the owner of the Buffalo Bills. So tell us a little bit more about your your time with Ralph and and how he was able to, as an entrepreneur himself, create this legacy now that that both those two regions are benefiting from. Yeah, it was exciting, and I was thrilled to work for him. He was a great boss. You know, but he was all the only thing he was a stickler about was honesty and integrity. And as long as you were sharing with him what was going on, uh, the, the bad as well as the good, mm-hmm. he was fine mm-hmm. uh, with that. Of course, he was very diversified. He was the original owner of the Buffalo Bills, one of the original owners of the AFL, AFL. back in 1960. And he was key to the merger of the AFL with the NFL in 1971. Uh, and he owned, started with an insurance company that his father had started. He owned trucking companies. He owned oil drilling companies. He owned tool and die companies. He owned broadcast stations. Uh, he was very diversified and he loved to own and he owned everything. Uh-huh. So he was not really an investor. Okay. Uh, he saw an opportunity in the TV business back in 1968 was his first TV station that he bought. And then he built, you know, very robust, diverse portfolio of companies that he personally owned. But he he reminded all the managers of all of his other companies at one point that the football team would be the last to go. Uh All of you are vulnerable, (laughs) but the bills are not. And of course, that was successful. And just as an aside, he bought the franchise for the Buffalo Bills for $25,000. Yeah. You know, I know a lot about professional sports in, in my career over the years and what some of the entry points were at a certain time. And in that same era, I think Art Modell, now a little more expensive, but Art Modell bought the Browns, I think, for $1.2 million, but that mm-hmm. was an NFL franchise. And that was in 1962. And that was the era where the players actually had to have jobs on the side. Right. Uh, and um, you'll remember this, and I'm really dating myself, but the one kicker for the Browns back in those days, Lou Groza, had an yeah. insurance company, just like Ralph did. And yeah. you could go to see Lou on the offseason and buy insurance from him. But it, <laughs> that's not the way it is today. Well, let's talk no. a little bit about then coming to Spark. I mean, one of the things that I've always talked about, and, and you are, I think, uh, for sure, at retirement, we're the longest tenured person in the organization. I think we often say, you were the second employee. Mike Finney, Mike Finney was the first. And and for the audience, you know, sometimes we have to remind them that we've been around for a while and, and mm-hmm. been during these programs. So that was back in the 2004, 2005 days. So talk us a little bit about that. I mean, you mentioned already that, you know, you, you got acquainted with Rick Snyder for the audience to know in the initial part of Sparks setup. Mary Sue Coleman, who was the president of the University of Michigan, thought this was a good thing. We needed to have this kind of organization. She reached out to Rick Snyder. This is history that people have shared with me. And they collaborated with the private sector leaders, public sector leaders, and the academic side to form Spark. So you were you were there sort of at the beginning. So tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I think there's a third person that we ought to mention. That's Ken Nesbitt, who was yep. running the tech transfer office for the university at the time. And Rick was on his advisory committee, advisory board. And the two of them had been talking about doing something like Spark for several years. 
And when Mary Sue and Rick had their conversation and Mary Sue was all in, then, you know, Ken worked with, with Rick to actually create the organization officially in 2005. And then they reached back out to Mike Finney, who was at the MEDC years earlier and right. had gone to Rochester, New York, Just and they enticed him to come back right. to, to start up Spark and the Washington Development Council. And that's what people, I don't think really appreciate about what, what happened was you, Mike was the president of two separate organizations. Spark was a startup mm -hmm. and then the Washington Development Council, yeah. traditional economic development. And the goal was, and the community leaders across the board were supportive, let's merge the two. And that created a, an extremely unique economic development yeah. organization that literally served companies high growth companies, as you refer to the GDP companies, from inception of an idea and a new product to Toyota right. and, and large companies and every size company in between and attracting them and helping them grow, et cetera. So that was my goal was to actually take what uh, Bill Wood had been engaged as well as Kurt Rieger to kind of create or game plan, if you will, a business plan for Spark. And so I had that to draw on when Mike hired me to start in 2006 to develop the processes that we still have in many ways today for helping educate and bring along uh, entrepreneurs, particularly first-time entrepreneurs, and get them to understand it's more than just a product. It's not a matter of build it and they will come. Right. We've actually got to create a business. What does that mean? And that's what we've been doing ever since. Well, I think the part of the genius of back at the beginning, you know, because you know, I arrived in 2011. So a lot of what you're talking about, the foundational steps created Sparks. One of, Spark, one of the things that was that I've always appreciated in contrast to other similar entrepreneurial support organizations elsewhere is the depth of support we give the companies and the degree of patience we have. I think some of our, our private entities like us are, have very short frames when they work with companies. Yeah. And I know you're nodding your head and I know even smiling that there are some companies we stayed with a long time, but it's paid off after years because sometimes some of these things, the, the genesis of them is, is more long-term than short-term. But I guess so the question that we had posed in, in preparing for this and it's really a big question to ask is, you know, how has the system changed in your view in Ann Arbor and in the state as large since then? I guess to tee that up, I would say that I think that was a period of time where the state began through MEDC, maybe through the governor administrations, recognized that growing early stage companies was something the state of Michigan should be should be focused on. But but to talk a little bit about, you know, since from that time to now, what are some of the main main things that you have seen that you're particularly proud of or saw that, that occurred over time? Well, I think, here, let's give the state, to follow up one of your comments, let's give the state credit. Somebody was pretty darn smart when they created the smart zones. Yes. And you, uh, you know who that is. I'm going to interrupt you. I get, you know, I could just say this must have been a really smart person. I say this all the time. I don't know who, who actually came up with it, but I don't do either, but okay. I'm glad right. they did. And then there was also smart people in Ann Arbor 
who identified the proper district to right. create right. to uh, that funded the local development finance authority, the LDFA, which then gave us the capital. But it took several years to get there. Right. I remember we had a pretty lean budget in 2006 when we started, but you know it's it's grown, which was the expectation, and uh, has given us the capital to do do a lot of what we do, uh, and has since you know probably 2007 or 2008 nine when it really got meaningful. Uh, but what we found was, and we always knew, uh, venture capital in the Midwest, not just in Michigan, was lacking. We needed a lot more of it to support our entrepreneurs and get them on their feet. But uh, the state stepped up and helped that as well. And the venture industry got a big boost in 2006 and up to 2010. And we've got a pretty healthy venture industry right now in the state uh, to help with the diversification of our our industries that are here. Uh, but then as a result of our getting and managing the state's pre-seed fund for early stage companies, originally on behalf of the smart zone companies that were coming out of smart zones, we discovered that the missing link really were angel investors because VCs had gone downstream. They were waiting for companies to be much more mature than they were back in 1999. And so who's going to pick up those pre-seed kinds of investments, those early, early dollars that, that entrepreneurs need? And it turns out, and this is national. This is not unique to us. This is national. It was angels that had to start stepping up, individuals to make those, those investments. And that became the missing link. And about the time Mike went to the MEDC and you came and you saw the need and the vision that this was something that needed to be addressed. This was the missing link, if you will, to really accelerating the growth of our entrepreneurs and our startups in the state. And so you gave me and been extremely supportive and encouraging to pursue doing whatever we could to get angel activity in the state of Michigan more robust. Well, it was easy I for well, that, Thank you for indicating that it was supportive of that. I think for the audience to understand, my my history, I came from prior job was in Silicon Valley. Uh, angel investment is an easy concept out there. Yeah, right. You go to a, a restaurant in Palo Alto or you're in a Woodside and you're having lunch and you see people writing che checks. I mean, that sounds silly, but you do see that. And um, so the idea was, and I think maybe for, for the general audience that's listening Maybe we step back and really define what we mean by an angel investor. Maybe take a moment and, and talk about that. And the second thing is that because um, there there wasn't there was, wasn't that history of angel investment, we were essentially not only trying to encourage the investment, but we had to educate about mm -hmm. the opportunity. So talk a little bit about who these angels are and and what we needed, what we did, and what we are still doing to try to get more of that to happen. Angel investors are identified by the federal government as high net worth households that have, you know, well over a million dollars of liquid cash to, to invest, who take a piece of their assets and put it into alternative investments. And that could include real estate as well as, you know, venture capital and other things. Angel investing falls into that category, which is high risk. So you have to have a risk appetite. But there are individuals who are writing checks out of their individual checking accounts and giving it to an entrepreneur 
to help them get to their next milestone as they build their business and their company. So that's who an angel investor is. Uh, and Michigan is a pretty wealthy state. We've got some counties in the state of Michigan with, with a lot of high net worth households in them, but there's high net worth people throughout the state. All states have a certain number of high net worth households, and those are all potential angels if they have the risk tolerance, because it's not for the faint of heart. 50% of all startup companies, whether they're a tech company or a restaurant, they're all going to, they're not going to see a fifth anniversary. And so you're going to lose some money along the way, which is why you need to be diversified. But the, but the winners can, can give investors huge returns. And you got to go into it with that mentality. It's long-term. You know, you talked about economic development in general's long-term. Yep. You know, back in the early days, we would tell people, look, the golden triangle in the, in the Carolinas, you know, at the time Spark was created, we would sometimes refer to that as kind of a benchmark as a goal. Right. And we would have to remind people it took 30 to 50 years for yeah. that triangle to get yeah. to where it is. Yeah. And so you need to have that 30-year horizon. Well, angel well, I, investors, you don't need to have a 30-year right. horizon, but you got to have multi-year. Yeah, I tell people the same thing, you know, about, about Silicon Valley. You know, there's a notion that, you know, it just arose at a particular point in time. Well, mm -hmm. no, there were there was early radio, early sort of radar investment in the 30s. You know, there began to be some folks at Stanford that were working on things. And then, you know, you've lived through the same time I lived through the Cold War, then it became a real defense center. And and that was the history. But everybody kind of yeah. their mind, it's it's the dot com period. That's when right. Silicon Valley or the beginning of Apple is an example. But it was the genesis of it. You know, we're probably talking now, you're talking 80 years in terms of Silicon Valley to get to where it was today. So so the other notion I think that's important for the folks to understand is what we did is we created, and anyone maybe describe that because we, we are continuing to do this, we created the opportunity to maybe minimize a bit of the initial risk tolerance or or or, or fear, let's say it that way, of investors because we were we were presenting them the opportunity to be a part of a fund as opposed mm -hmm. to just a single company. So, so talk a little bit about the fund and then the fact that that educational process has caused them to go ahead and invest more money in these projects. But yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, the whole idea behind the fund was to make it easy for people who had never made these kind of investments in the past to you know, tip the toe in the water and learn what this was really all about without putting a whole lot of money at risk. And by being in the fund, they would be in 10 companies, which right. addresses the diversification issue that all angels should you know, focus on and, and apply. And they could then be passive or active, meaning that if that's all the money you want to put to work, fine. Mm -hmm. You're in the fund. You're going to be invested. And along the way, desire through meeting as angel groups, you will also learn the processes, what you need to do, how you find deals, how you vet deals, the diligence process, how do you structure deals, what the expectation is post-investment, et cetera. So it was an educational tool also. Mm -hmm. You could be active though, uh, in that as we bring deals to the group, you as a member, if you wanted to make an additional investment specifically into that company, right? We encourage you to do that. In fact, we so that we were 
over time, what we've done is leveraged yep. the size of the fund two to yep. one. Yep. So the direct investments by members in the fund are putting in twice as much money as the fund is putting in, which now we're talking real money because that was another challenge. A lot of the angels that did exist and the groups that existed before 2010, they were putting in small amounts and it really wasn't helping the entrepreneur move the needle. Uh, They needed some more significant dollars and we were able to do that as well. So one last general question, I guess, which was, in thinking about that, what's what advice? Because I know you have done these types of investment personally. What kind of advice do you offer uh, to prospective investors as they as they think about being in this particular area of investment? Patience and understanding that it is a multi-year return. These are not liquid investments either. It's not like I can buy a stock this yeah. morning and sell it this afternoon. Once that check is written and it's in the company bank account and they are now deploying it, you may not see a return for several years. You may not see a penny of that back for several years. So you need to understand its patience long-term and be diversified. Be, uh, don't be afraid to invest in companies that are in industries maybe you don't understand. Understand it enough to be comfortable, able to explain to your spouse what that company does and what the potential is for that product or service. But it could be five, 10 years Mm -hmm. before you, your money back. And, but then by then, hopefully it's a whole lot more than you would ever get over that same period of time in the stock market. Okay. So we're going to close out. So what's up for you next? (laughs) What what, what are you, what are you focusing on now as you retired from Spark? Yeah. First and foremost, I think, the other thing about angel investing is it's fun. And I am not leaving that world. I will stay engaged and encourage people to consider getting engaged, joining an angel group of some kind in the in the state and you know enjoy it as much as I have because I learn something new every day. That's what's really enjoyable about it. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I plan on playing a little more golf, doing a little more skiing. Ann and I may travel a bit more. I took my first piano lesson a couple of weeks ago, so I'm now wow. learning to play the piano. And just, and I'm going to write a book for my grandkids, uh, kind of an autobiography yeah. for yeah, them yeah. to plug in when they do the family tree. Yeah. Give them a little more context of what yeah. their grandfather, great grandfather, did. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, same thing. One of the things that I treasure, just going off on a tangent here, is my great uncle wrote a story about their immigration experience. And oh, what's unique about it is my family says this little, I'm going down a tangent here, but it's okay, is that the elders immigrated once and after World War One they went back. But oh, the, really? their children were born in America, so they were educated American kids they took back. So that's my great uncle. So he wrote in English his experience of being taken back and yeah. then being brought over again. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a real legacy to leave to children and grandchildren because they they experience living with you and all those years and all that kind of stuff, but they don't know everything about you that you right. might want to share. So that's a great idea. Well, yeah. I don't want to skip. I really do. I want to really thank you for being a part of Spark all these years. I think you are one of the key architects that helped build the ecosystem that we have in Ann Arbor, the supporting technology companies 
that we are we are living on the legacy of now in terms of the quality of the companies and the size of our portfolio. And and you you've helped the state in that way as well, not only just the Ann Arbor region. So I do want to thank you for that and really our best wishes from everybody who's worked with you to you and Ann. I'm sure thank we'll you. be staying in touch yep. um, over the years. And so and I want to take a chance to thank our audience for listening and learning more about those leaders and organizations working hard to create Ann Arbor's, the Ann Arbor region's economic future. And these conversations are brought to you by Ann Arbor Spark. For more information about Ann Arbor Spark, you can find us on the web at annarborusa.org and also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You also can learn more about the Michigan Angel Fund that we are the administrators of and are proud to do so uh, at miangelfund.com. Take care, Skip. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it.